You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Fong. So the same Welcome to another episode of the Christian Humanist Podcast. I'm your host for today. My name is Michael Farmer. Joining me, as always, is Nathan Gilmore, who is a professor of English at Franklin Spring, or Emanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. That's the third or fourth time this season I've messed that up, Nathan. Well, it used to be Franklin Springs Institute, so I'll take it. Yeah, but it was Franklin Springs Institute long before I'd ever heard of it, I'm sure. Well, I'll still (laughs) give it to you, all right? Also joining us is someone whose school and location are very difficult to screw up, David Grubbs, who is an assistant professor of English at Houston Baptist University in Houston, Texas. <laughs> I guess I could say Houston, Texas University in, ba- in, in Houston Baptist or something I, like I, that. If you, if, if you want to, just for the sake of symmetry. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll try to find a way to screw it up sometime. Uh, before we get into the subject at hand, what is new on the network this week? We have a Sectarian Review episode on Blade Runner and Blade Runner 2049 uh, in honor of the fact that the uh, original Blade Runner takes place in November 2019. Seemed a good time to talk about it. We've also got the last episode of the uh, Iliad season of Core Curriculum, and I've already had a listen to that, and it was a good show. Uh, And we've, uh, we've already started recording the next season, which is about the Republic. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. We've also got an episode on the Christian Feminist Podcast coming up. Does anyone happen to remember what that's about? If not, I can look it up quickly. The episode coming out Friday is about uh, the makeup industry and the yep, beauty that's industry. that's right. That's okay, right. That's cool. right. So, something to say about the Sectarian Review is that for whatever reason, iTunes and pod feeders that work on iTunes have been dropping their episodes. So you may not have received a new episode on of sectarian review in some time. And if that describes you, probably the best fix is to go into your podcatcher and insert the feed burner feed uh, itself rather than relying on iTunes or Overcast or whatever other app you use to, right, to catch right. it. And an update on that, I believe this week's Blade Runner episode is available on iTunes and on Overcast, but the previous two weeks, the Halloween crossover and then the episode on V for Vendetta appear on feed burner they appear on stitcher they appear on other feeders but for whatever reason apple uh doesn't like them yeah so if you if you want that episode if you want the the feed burner link you can go to our network twitter account which is at ch radio network and uh i i posted it there so or you can you can just search feed burner sectarian review it's a pretty distinctive uh podcast name but it is feeds feeds dot feed burner dot com slash the sectarian review right right oh and then one other episode michael that i forgot and i shouldn't have forgotten is a book of nature episode on uh concrete and abstract thinking yeah i'm interested i haven't listened yet and i i wonder because i just published an article lambasting abstract thought 
in America Magazine. So I, I have to I have to wonder if I'm the one who inspired that episode. Probably not. Hard <laughs> what to say, a hard to say. You listen and find out. Well, our episode today is on the Martin Scorsese movie Taxi Driver. And I want to put out two warnings here at the beginning. Number one, we're going to spoil the movie as we always do when we talk about movies. Number two, if you haven't seen Taxi Driver, it is a hard R. We have have sometimes gotten complaints when we talk about things with a whole lot less adult content in them than Taxi Driver. So I want to make it clear at the outset that this is a, uh, a disturbing movie. Uh, with violence and, and quite a bit of sexual dialogue. So if you if that sort of thing bothers you, maybe just listen to us talk about it. Uh, but if not, probably you want to go watch the movie before you listen to this conversation unless you want the, the movie spoiled for you. Anything you guys want to add about that? Uh, I'd say sexual dialogue and uh, orgiastic imagery. Yeah, that's true. That's true. He, he does go to the porno movies, doesn't he? Oh, he does. Yeah, make, make sure the kids are in bed. Yeah. <laughs> and preferably in another county. Yeah. 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 And you have the volume down low enough where they can't hear it. Maybe subtitles. Just go with subtitles. Oh, but then you miss the score. We don't we're not gonna talk about the score in this episode, but man, it's fantastic. Taxi Driver is the first iconic Martin Scorsese movie. Uh it's by no means his first. I think some people may be surprised to learn that. Nathan, where does it fit into the broader sweep of his career? And I guess more fundamentally, why should we care about Scorsese's work in the first place? Oh, we should care about Scorsese's work. uh, The same reason we care about any art, because it does interesting things. We're going to be talking about those interesting things today. Uh, Scorsese's career, uh, you know, begins in the late 60s. Uh, He directs a series of movies. Uh, Honestly, I hadn't heard of any of them before Taxi Driver. Uh, so I didn't really make notes on them because I didn't want to comment on things that I haven't actually watched. Uh, but Taxi Driver, like you said, is, is the one that you know I remember as early Scorsese. Some of the other ones that I've seen, Michael, uh, and I'll, I'll, like I said, limit my comments to the ones that I've got uh, eyeballs on, so to speak. Uh, Raging Bull is just a fascinating sports film uh, about a self-destructive boxer. Uh, it has none of the sort of feel-good uh, character of a Rocky movie that you kind of associate with boxing movies. It's like the anti-Rocky in a lot of ways. Yeah, it really is. I think, really I think is. very intentionally, probably. Oh, I have to think so. It's a few years after Rocky, so yeah, that makes sense. Um, Last Temptation of Christ, unfortunately, I have seen that one. Yeah, that's a turd. Uh, I'm sure I will, I will gripe about it as the episode rolls on. Uh, Goodfellas is sort of a uh, a parallel to the Godfather movies, and, you know, it's a... It's a, I want to say it is Godfather without the Roman virtue, if I'm allowed (laughs) to go there. It's a a much less romanticized picture of the mob, to be sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, Now, I've also seen, uh, you know, some of his more, I I don't even know what to call them. I mean, popular films, I guess, like Cape Fear. Oh, Um, man, Cape Fear is scary. That's one of the scariest movies ever made. (laughs) Yeah. and then, you know, again, he, he ventures again into the world of, you know, uh, organized crime and that sort of side of America with Casino and Gangs of New York. One of them set, you know, in modern times, the other set during the Civil War in the city of New York. Uh, and then finally, you know, I, I want to talk a little bit about his more recent offerings. Uh, in 06, uh, he directed The Departed, 
uh, which finally got him, you know, his long-awaited Best Picture Oscar. Uh, and since then, you know, he's done a number of films. I'll confess that I haven't seen them just because I have kids. And frankly, like we said earlier, you don't take kids to a Scorsese film. Uh, so, uh, you know, once you get past The Departed, you know, which is right about the time my son was born, uh, my familiarity with Scorsese's films uh, cuts off. Although I will say uh, that he is now uh, promoting... Uh, a project that he is putting out on Netflix. Uh, so he is not someone who is stuck to the big screen, uh, but he is willing to go into those other realms. And of course it was uh, in promoting this new Netflix project, which is called The Irishman, that he made the comments that sent social media into a tizzy. So Michael, you're always more of a, a film scholar than I am. So uh, fill in some gaps there for us. The important two movies he makes before Taxi Driver are Mean Streets, which I have not seen, and Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore, which is kind of the Scorsese version of a romantic comedy. And it actually became the television show Alice of Kiss My Grits fame. You, you may remember that from your childhood, Nathan. I do. I do. Yeah. The movie, I haven't seen the TV show, so I can't speak to it. The movie is really pretty good. Uh, it's got the Scorsese twist, which is, I mean, this is an abused woman. Um, but it's a funny movie and sweet and not nearly as dark as Taxi Driver or I assume Mean Streets, which came before it. He uh, The movie directly after... Taxi Driver, of all things, is New York, New York, which is the movie we get the song New York starts spreading the news, the the Ralph Burns song from. Um, And that is Scorsese's musical. Uh, I think it's widely considered to be bad, uh, but that song is pretty great. Um, He he has a a really broad range of genres he's worked in. I think he kind of gets typecast as that mafia guy, but and, you know, for good reason. He's got three or four mafia movies, but he's he's done straight horror, which I would call Cape Fear. That's, a, like I said, one of the scariest movies ever made. He's done these kind of um, historical movies. He did the, I believe, the film adaptation of Edith Wharton's The Age of Innocence. He did Gang, Gangs of New York, which is kind of the shadow side of Age of Innocence in a weird way. He did uh, Wolf of Wall Street, I think, is a, is a movie that doesn't, I don't know that I would immediately say is Scorsese. I haven't seen that one. I've heard it's good. Most recently, he did a movie called Silence, which is an adaptation of the uh, the Shisaku Indo novel of that same name, which is supposed to be magnificent, but which was a giant flop. Uh, and again, I haven't seen it because I'm very rarely in the mood to watch a three-hour movie that's going to devastate me. Yeah, and I won't watch it because I still haven't forgiven him for Last Temptation. And Last Temptation <laughs> is a really bad movie that I think a lot of people pretended to like because they didn't want to look like the fundamentalists who were uh, protesting it. But it's it's really not a good movie. Well, uh, and it, its crime is the same crime as the movie 300. It takes a fascinating source text and makes it dull. Yeah. So I, we don't we don't recommend that, although not necessarily for the religious reasons that sometimes people blame it for, because I, I didn't find it a particularly blasphemous movie. It's just not a very no. good movie. I, I was just looking at my watch about an hour and a half in. I was like, when is this going to end? You didn't enjoy the Bunsen burner, Satan? Oh, dear heavens. <laughs> I, 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 uh, you, you, you're going to you're going to set me off here, Michael. I am counting the days until I can see The Irishman on Netflix, though, because I hear it's a masterpiece it's it's supposed to be one of his best movies ever and this is a guy who's made a lot of really good movies um in a lot of different genres so i'm excited uh david have you seen any of his movies before this 
This is the only Scorsese film I've ever seen, and I watched it yesterday. Okay. So, I know nothing. One of the ones we should mention is his children's movie, Hugo, uh, which I also have not seen. Nor but, have I. Which exists. And categorically, so, right. we can say that David hasn't. No. <laughs> I, I suspect that one has read or less sex and profanity than the average Scorsese movie. One would hope. Gosh, I would hope. I mean, in particular, I think The Departed has the most uses of the F word uh, in any movie in history. I think it yeah. beat out Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back, which is, uh, that's nice, really saying something. Nice. Of course, it is three hours long, so that helps. He's pacing himself. That's a great movie. I, I mean, profanity aside really? and every, oh, everything see, else I, you want to say about him. I, I that, loved that movie. That movie did not impress me. I, oh. I don't know why. I just, I wasn't impressed. I, I would call that the best of his gangster movies. Although, you know, I haven't seen Casino, so maybe that one's better. But I, th- I thought The Departed was better than Goodfellas, which is itself a really great movie. I like Goodfellas better. Anyway, Taxi Driver, not a mafia movie, and thus maybe not the first thing that people think of when they think of Scorsese, but probably the second or third thing. This is by no means an interesting or unusual opinion, but I read Taxi Driver as one of the definitive movies of the American 1970s, uh, which is a decade I did not experience firsthand, but which I associate with grime, violence, and despair. I think I talked about this at some length on the Before They Were Live episode on The Rescuers of All Things, which is, I I think, probably second only to Taxi Driver in terms of its depictions of the disgusting 1970s. David, how uh, how, did, how does Scorsese bring that cultural mood onto the screen in this movie? And, I mean, while we're at it, am I being unfair to the 1970s? Uh, I don't think so. Um, I mean, I lived through a couple of years of the 70s, but I wasn't actually, you know, really aware of much. Wasn't really sentient, to speak. Um, but, and, and in any event, I wasn't really in the taxi driver 1970s. I was... I was living in more of the Dukes of Hazard 1970s. Nice. <laughs> so, based though on what I've uh, what I've read, and it you know confirmed what I just sort of generally understood uh, about the decade uh, across the country, uh, there is a notable, noticeable, a discernible, and uh, in that time. A dramatic and appalling rise in crime of all different sorts. Uh, it corresponds also with a uh, a, a worldwide uh, economic downturn, um, which uh, in the U.S. is you know the recession of the 1970s with terms like stagflation, with uh, which is high inflation plus high unemployment. Um, the 50s and 60s, you know, if you just sort of look at graphs of property crime and violent crime, the 50s and 60s are kind of the low dip. And then you just see it go up and up and up and up and up and up. And that's the, that that climb in the charts is the sort of thing that you see in Taxi Driver. Um, New York City was no exception to that. Uh, as I was bouncing around, one thing that was mentioned was that apparently uh, that uh, that decade in the New York subway station or the New York subway system was the most violent decade or the most violence uh, in the subway system 
uh, in its history. Yeah. Um, and, it, and it has still not been surpassed. Yeah, well, New York in particular was in a terrible situation in the 70s. The way that rise in the charts shows up in Taxi Driver is first just a general kind of sheen of grime over the top of all of it. Uh One of the first things that you see in the film is New York at night, the glare of lights, and smoke. Yep. Um, The title coming out of the smoke is um, emblematic. Uh, The the New York that it shows right at the outset. outset. Uh, Well, if you were from the Middle Ages, you would think, ah, a hellmouth. Yeah, well, yeah, that's uh, that's exactly right. You notice that the the uh, uh, hydrants are always overflowing too. Yeah, yeah, someone's already always bust open a, a hydrant, and it's just water everywhere. Even when it's not raining, he's still using his windshield wipers because of all the hydrants. Violence is everywhere. Um, just, just sort of looking out of his windows, he sees he sees it in the streets constantly. People threatening violence. People actually doing violence. Um, you know, scenes of despair, uh, general crime and decadence. Uh, streetwalkers everywhere. Porno film or porno theaters everywhere. All through Times Square. Yeah, and. This he he drives. Uh, he makes a point of saying in the narration that that he w- he will go anywhere in New York, and because he'll go anywhere, even the most dangerous places other taxi drivers won't go. That means that he sees everything. All right, places that that shows up in the film. Uh, probably the 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 most stomach churning one is him describing cleaning uh, biological substances out of his back seat. Uh-huh. <laughs> Uh, every night, which, every night, which I'm, you know, throwing up in my mouth a little bit. He'd have to clean uh, that out of his seats too. Yeah, uh, ironically, like, like he doesn't even name vomit. Um, he also uh, other other kinds of things surface. Uh, his general ignorance of the sort of anti-establishment counterculture of the late 60s into the 70s. He doesn't really seem to understand it. He knows it's there and is deeply suspicious of it. Um, thinking of his conversation with Iris and talking about communes. Mm-hmm. Um, he's a square. Way, yeah, he's a square who doesn't know what square means. Um, the way that he stares at black men um, is also emblematic of uh, just a rise in racial tensions and violence um, in, you know, the the years, you know, the decade plus really preceding uh, this film. And, you know, Travis is, uh, he, he always seems to be in sort of danger mode, though he's not always sure what he's supposed to be doing when he's in danger mode. Um but he he always seems to be on the alert. There's constant shots of his eyes just sort of rolling in every direction um, as he looks through the windows, as he looks in mirrors, uh, the rearview mirror, and so that those are those are the ways that that we see um, what was re- what was really a, a you know as you say a, a 
dark and grim, g grimy, violent, despairing, sleazy era. What am I leaving out? I think it's interesting that this is also set in uh, a presidential campaign year, and the mm -hmm. candidate that we get to see uh, is someone who, even though he's in New York City, he's still uh, proposing things that don't really touch on anything that you actually see and hear in the film. Uh, it's all about welfare. It's all about uh, big bureaucratic programs. And I think that that disconnect is something that is a, a commentary of sorts on the 70s as well. I'll add that, and, and maybe this is just me, but I couldn't help but find all this grime and violence and disgust kind of beautiful just because of the way Scorsese makes us pay attention to it. There's a... There's a maxim, I think it's called Truffaut's Law, after the, uh, after the French filmmaker Truffaut, that you can't show a war without glorifying war, that somehow putting war on the screen makes it beautiful. And I, th I think there's really something to that in terms, of, um, in terms of 1970s New York as well. I, despite everything, despite the, the bleakness of this picture of, of New York in the 70s, I found myself wanting to go there just from watching the movie. There's something about it. Uh, that's really appealing. And I mean, maybe one of the things that's appealing is the the great despair of the 1970s, and, and in particular, the, the rundownness of New York, allows for an awful lot of good art from Taxi Driver to the punk movement. None of that stuff would have been possible if New York had been in a financially healthy situation. So uh, I don't know, but there's something appealing, even as it's uh, off-putting. Was that, is that uh, just me? Michael sees a hell mouth and he thinks, I wonder if I could go on vacation there. I bet their rent is cheap. <laughs> I, I'll bet their rent is cheap. <laughs> At the center of this movie yeah. is one of cinema's great all-time anti-heroes, Travis Bickle. His name is almost synonymous with uh, cinematic anti-heroes. How do Scorsese and the screenwriter, Paul Schrader, who we haven't really talked about, but maybe we ought to, how do they draw their picture of this guy? And how are we supposed to feel about him? So the first, uh, you know, real sort of data dump, if you will, is when he is actually uh, applying to be a taxi driver. We find out that he's a Marine Corps veteran, uh, presumably of Vietnam, since this is 1976. Uh, we discover, you know, pretty quickly that he doesn't have any family in New York City, although he does have someone that he writes to and lies to. Uh, I found myself wondering throughout the movie whether he was writing to real people or products of his own imagination as his mental state became more and more tenuous. Um, he is someone who has a moral outrage without necessarily having a moral philosophy because, as David noted, I mean, he will go into a porno and just sit down and watch it as if he's just going to any old movie, uh, which actually brings up a, a question that I have about the character and about the the seventies and, and Michael, you and I talked about this a little bit in pregame, but I know that in Indianapolis and I realize New York city is not as big as Indianapolis, but in Indianapolis, <laughs> as late as the eighties, uh, you had porno theaters that also had art house films. So, I mean, I, I wondered the first time I saw this, you know, 20 some years ago. And I wondered this time, I mean, is he going to both sorts of movies? Is he going to one rather than the other? Was that even a thing in the 70s or did it come to pass in the 80s that that, you know, the, the pornography industry 
was subsidizing foreign films and art films and so on and so forth. M- Michael, I mean, I, I, I don't know that you've ever done any research on this, but is that a uh, question of cultural history you can take a an attempt to answer? I can give you a little bit of information, which is I, I can tell you that the rise of the pornographic film industry and the rise of art house cinema happened concurrently. And in some cases, there's not really a big distinction between them. So, for example, the first, I believe the first, um, pornographic films to reach a really large audience was this movie Behind the Green Door, which you may have heard of. It's Marilyn Chambers' first movie. She's a kind of notorious 1970s porn star. I should point out, I've not seen this movie. But it was it was released to art house theaters and reviewed by major movie critics. Roger Ebert, for example, reviewed it. And so I, I think in a real sense in the early 1970s in particular, there is not a hard and fast line between art movie and pornography, as there still isn't in in some ways. So if you think about the way people talk about uh, foreign films, especially French movies, uh, doesn't it sometimes get used as a synonym for high class pornography? And, and in some cases, isn't it just high-class pornography with, with a storyline. I'm thinking about, there was a movie a few years ago, again, which I have not seen, called Love, and it had unsimulated sex. So in, in what sense is this movie not a pornographic movie? Well, it's not because they call it an art house movie. And and I, I, I think those lines were very, very blurry in the 1970s. When, when you get the Hays Code relaxing, you get all sorts of stuff that has come down to us as art house movies, and you get all sorts of stuff that has come down to us as pornography. And at the time, I'm not sure the line was quite so hard and fast. Right, I, right. Because, I mean, even at, even as soon after this as The Fisher King, which we did in an episode a few years ago when we were uh, doing our Robin Williams tri- uh, trilogy, uh, pornography had, to a large extent, moved into the video stores. And, of course, in the last 10 years, it's moved almost entirely online. So... That, that's one thing that's definitely a, a 70s feature of this film uh, and something that, like I said, makes uh, makes Travis, I mean, a bit of a mystery to me. Uh, you know, to what extent is he aware of, you know, the counterculture, the pornography industry? You know, to what extent is that character capable of even posing those questions? And I, I don't know how to answer that. I'll say that the only movies we see him watching seem to me to be pretty straightforwardly pornographic. And and the fact that Betsy, when he takes her to the movie, is so offended by it from from the get-go tells me that this is not a movie with, with any kind of discernible artistic value. Um, well, I, I don't want to steal too much from from because I know David's going to talk about Betsy here in a bit. But just to comment on that film, Michael, but even in that porn you have the orgiastic scene to be sure, but it is intercut with montage cuts of, you know, uh, electromagnetic microscope slides. And, you know, there's things going on on the screen that aren't just simulated sex. That's true. So, so again, I, I, I am genuinely ambiguous about what is this thing that he went to see? Is it something that considers itself art or is it, you know, something more like what we would consider internet porn, which at this point, as far as I know, doesn't make any such pretense? Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that's a, that's a good question. I wondered why he was here. I wondered why he was in New York at all. Where because else to he go? Seems to have, yeah. It, but it seems as if he, ha- he has such a distaste for it. He doesn't understand it. You know, it fills him with kind of fascinated horror. And why is he here? 
Um, that's something that's never, I don't know. Because, David, I, if you can make it there, you can make it anywhere. Well, and then also, David, I mean, if his family really is in his imagination, it could be that he doesn't have a family and therefore he goes to New York because that's where the work is. Why do the Muppets go to New York and Muppets take Manhattan? Another great 70s art house film. <laughs> Nathan, I think what you said about him being a moralist without any kind of discernible moral code is really key for understanding who this guy is. Like I, when I watched that, the movie this time, that's what stuck out to me is this guy, this guy takes a moral stance, but he doesn't actually have any kind of code that he's living by. Right, right. The plot of the movie is really driven by his relationship with these two women. One of them is played by Sybil Shepard, uh, Betsy. She's a campaign organizer for a populist Democratic candidate for president. I, I assume he's a Democrat. It doesn't come out and say it, but it certainly seems like he's a Democrat. He's and then, a Democrat. And then there's Iris, who's a 12-year-old prostitute and probably the most notorious character in this movie, even more so than Travis Bickle. She's played by Jodie Foster. I think his relationships with these women have aged exceptionally well. And that in fact, this is the part of the movie that's most resonant here, here at the end of 2019. David, do you agree with me? Well, I'm not really certain what you mean by, uh, resonant. What, what I mean is as the, uh, the question I didn't ask that's on the show notes says that this tells us something interesting about the way a certain kind of man deals with women. And I think today you would probably use the word incel to describe okay. that kind of man. Okay. Yeah. I mean, some, something that we didn't necessarily bring up. I mean, yes, he's in these porno theaters, but you never, like, the way that he is registering facially in those contexts um, is not those are not faces of of titillation those are not faces faces of necessarily uh, a kind of salacious enjoyment when you see him in his apartment it i kept thinking of monastic cells i kept thinking of of you know uh, a hermit you know flagellating himself um disciplining himself for the for you know, some some kind of uh, purpose of zeal. I, that's the sort of thing that that I that I saw from him. He doesn't seem uh, primarily sexual. Um, one of the things that's common in the ways that he treats Betsy and Iris is that he almost immediately believes that he knows them and knows what they need. And he approaches both of them on that basis. They are both intrigued by the degree of familiarity that I think he displays with them early on, that the kind of earnest interest that he shows in them. I, I think they find that fascinating. But but it grows out of the fact that he, he, he thinks he knows them. Um, and he thinks he knows what they need. Uh, he sees Betsy as needing a soulmate, so in that sense, she's like him. Um, he sees in her kind of a mirror of his own uh, his own isolation, um, in contrast to her her coworker, whom he doesn't like um, and doesn't think respects her, and so forth. Played by the great nebbish 
Albert Brooks. Excellent. Uh, he admires Betsy. Uh, he feels protective of Iris. Um, and so, for that reason, Iris needs a knight. Um, Betsy needs a soulmate. Iris needs a knight. He admires Betsy. He feels protective of Iris. And so we have... Um, I mean, the the old uh, the 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 Magdalene and the Madonna cliche, right? Except he's trying to rescue, not to exploit the Magdalene, and the Madonna draws him n- not so much to worship her or to put her on a pedestal, um, to objectify her in the sense of reverence. But it seeks him to kind of aspire and seek communion. Like he's he's he admires to her. He admires her, and because of that, is drawn to her, and wants to present himself as a particular kind of person. He wants to be the sort of person that she would want to be with. Um, it's really really interesting to me to to watch him relate to them because uh, he he very clearly is a character who is in some sense. Um, he reminds me of Percival in uh, the those the Cretan chivalric romance, um, the fool who doesn't understand the way people work, doesn't understand the way the world works, and is constantly getting himself into situations that um, he he doesn't have the wisdom to navigate. Um, he reminds me a bit of Percival in that way. Um, there's an earnestness to it, but it reveals something that I don't think is. Uh, I don't think it's a bad thing. It's a thing that, you know, maybe in another time and in another place um, might have been nurtured in another direction. But uh, he's ultimately being set up for disappointment because of the ways in which uh, the ways he relates to them does not match um, the ways they are or the ways that they perceive their situation. Um, He takes Betsy to... Um, a movie in the theaters that he frequents and doesn't understand why uh, she finds it offensive. It didn't. It didn't even occur to him um, that respectable folks don't go to those theaters. Um, he doesn't know any of them, I guess. And so she distances herself from them, and he is offended by that personal distance, um, and and that drives him to to react angrily. Um, hostily. Uh, Iris, he is disappointed by the the degree to which she seems oblivious to her own situation. Um, he sees her in dire, dire peril, and she describes her situation, um, and it's even presented on camera in ways that are very, very much like um, the commune counterculture that she sees as her other alternative. Um, you know, the in, in that in that counterculture there's also you know it's also defined by you know sex and substance use and um you know a weird uh, a weird kind of community and her relationship with her uh with her primary um pimp is is one that reminded me in a weird way of the um the relationships that you see in, especially in in film and in TV, when the '70s does a cult, the way that he treats her is the way that cult leaders treat.
treat, that kind of personal closeness, um, all those all those kinds of things. It seemed to be overlapping. Um, so, uh, you know, for for Iris, can you actually tell the difference between uh, criminal, uh, the you know, the alternate society of organized crime and the ex and her own exploitation, and the alternate society of the commune counterculture? Um, yeah, so, uh, for. For Travis, there's a clear difference, and he can't understand why she can't see it. And again, that drives him um, to act in a violent way as well. But again, he doesn't really understand what she needs either. He doesn't really have a plan. The best he no. can come up with is to put a three, four hundred dollars in an envelope and give it to her. Uh, although I, I, I was never clear how exactly she was going to get it, even, and then to murder two guys in front of her. I mean, think about the PTSD she must have <laughs> at the end of this movie, and we just don't see it because we never see her again. Right, right. I, yes, I. It, it's it's obviously not. Nothing is healthy here. No one is healthy here. <laughs> right, and I I think the hallmark of the way he treats women is that everything he does is about him. So, so at, at no point do their actual interests or needs come into it. He he is behaving as a knight because it allows him to have a flattering self-conception of himself, self-conception or conception of himself. I guess you don't need both of them. He, yeah, but that's not that's in no way conscious on his part. Well, no, it's not conscious, but that's how that's how high his self-conception is. He's what I think gender theorists would call a nice guy, you know. He's, he's this guy who seems like he's out there doing something nice for these women, but what he really wants is to be rewarded for it. Maybe less so in the case of Iris than in the case of Betsy. But I, 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 I found this portrayal very interesting because of how contemporary it feels. I mean, thank God there's no community of incels for him to talk to or else this movie could have ended with him shooting up Betsy's place of work which I think is they made it in 2019 is how it probably would end. Right. Instead he shoots up Iris's place of work. Right. But at least he can see that not as getting revenge on her for rejecting him, but as, um, as rescuing her. Yeah. Yeah. Nathan, do you have anything to add? Uh, only, and I, again, I, I hate that I'm returning again to the porn movie scene, but I mean, that's another one where, again, I the way that I saw it when I was 20 is that he was trying to impress her by showing that he was hip with the counterculture. And this time, I mean, I think I was looking at it through 2019 eyes and that he was somehow, you know, imposing and intimidating her by watch it, making her watch sex acts while he sat next to her. But then the more I thought about it, I, I wondered if that self-conception that he has would allow him to be manipulative in that way. So, I mean, in some ways I'm returning to my 1997 reading of this film that, I mean, he really does think going in there that, okay, this is what the intellectuals of Manhattan do. They go to these art house films. So since she is obviously, you know, someone who is uh, a thinking person, I'm going to impress her by bringing her to this place. Oh, see, I, and maybe I'm reading it too, too much through 2019, but I see him as having been so corrupted by pornography uh, 
that he doesn't even see anything strange about it. You hear about all these stories about um, young men who start consuming pornography at the age of nine. And obviously he probably didn't do that because it wouldn't have been available to him. But again, I'm reading it through 2019. These, these, these young men who have been looking at porn since before they were pubescent, essentially, um, who, who some of them look at it several hours a day. You talk about him not taking any pleasure in it, David. That felt very, that felt very real to me. You, you hear these, you hear these reports of men who look at it for two, three hours at a time. And that can't be about physical gratification. You know, it, it's about something else. And it, it, what this does to their minds and the things they ask of the women who they want to have sex with, it all feels very Travis Bickle to me. I, I see this as someone who was a blank slate that pornography helped turn into the, the sort of, I don't know, social monster he becomes. Okay, that's interesting. Because I, like I said, I read him as someone who wasn't even aware of the distinction between art film and porn. No. And I think that's true too. I I, I just think it's so normal for him that he doesn't see anything wrong with it. Not, not in a like country bumpkin type way, but in a, you know, he's, he's been made monstrous. Okay. And see, I'm reading it more in a country bumpkin way. And I think it's because that scene follows up on the scene where he doesn't know I can't even remember which singer songwriter. Chris Christopherson, the male lead and Alice doesn't live here anymore. Right. Right. So, I mean, I, I guess I, I read it as a follow-up to that scene that it's another bumbling attempt on his part to, you know, impress her with his familiarity with a culture that he's really not familiar with. Hmm. And so he bumbles into that. I, I guess I didn't read it that way because we we've seen him go to numerous porno movies before the first scene of the movie is his eyes darting back and forth. And, and to, to me, I mean, you could read that as him looking out the window of the cab, but he hasn't taken the job as a cabbie yet. So I, yeah, point taken. Point I read taken. that opening scene is him consuming this pornography. My that favorite, sense. my favorite porn related scene in the movie, by the way, is when he tries to flirt with a girl at the concessions counter at the porno theater. Uh, yeah. That's a rough <laughs> job. Oh Yeah. There's an important scene midway through this movie in which Travis has a conversation with Wizard, who's this older cab driver played by Peter Boyle, and a kind of blue-collar American Sartre. Uh, I thought you must have enjoyed this, Nathan. So you tell us, what does Wizard tell Travis, and how does that scene color our understanding of the rest of the movie? I'll confess, by the time I looked at the show notes, I'd completely forgotten this scene. I had to I had to go back to that part of the movie and watch it again. Oh, man. When I saw it, I so. thought, oh, Nathan must be eating this up. <laughs> and, and once I rewatched it, I knew why you pitched it this way, because uh, uh, Travis is uh, the, the setup to Sartre's being in nothingness without the punchline. Uh, you know, uh, he says that, you know, you take a job and that becomes what you, what you are. Uh, and he says that, you know, I, I'm still driving night shift and I still don't own my own cab. So why is that? Uh, must because I don't want to, I must've chosen that. And I'm thinking, okay, now, now I'm waiting for the, uh, being a nothingness punchline, but it never comes. All we get is Travis saying that's about the dumbest thing I ever heard. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I guess there's an, uh, an implied Sartrean, uh, punchline there. Right. Yeah. Uh, and, and then, you know, a wizard says, 
well, you know, it's not Bertrand Russell, but what do you want? And I'm like, okay, what <laughs> is, how, how do these people know Bertrand Russell? Which I realize I, I, I don't know how long Bertrand's Russell's influence extended in the 1970s. What do I know? But let me back up to uh, the wizard scene and it's, uh, it's role as a setup for the rest of the movie. Um, this is the part, you know, at this point we've heard that Travis is disgusted with New York city. He's disgusted with the grime. He's disgusted with the decadence. Uh, you know, as we've said before, he's got moral outrage, but he's got no way to articulate the moral outrage. I think what wizard gives him is this sense that if he doesn't start to make moves, then he is going to simply become part of the city that he detests so much. Uh, and so, I mean, you know, I, I, I don't think it's a coincidence that it's not long after this scene uh, that, you know, the other cabbie hooks him up with the traveling salesman and he starts to acquire, you know, uh, a, a whole lot of, you know, sidearms. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, you know, at that point, uh, in a way that, you know, I mean, I, if I remember being in nothingness, right. And it's been a few years since I read it last, uh, you know, this is something that Sartre says, if you do this, you still haven't escaped from it. Uh, but I think Travis is in his own way and in his very unreflective way, uh, trying to style a self. He's trying to create a new character. And, you know, what we said earlier is precisely right. I mean, he is going to be the knight. He is going to slay the dragon uh, who looks like a presidential candidate. Uh, he is going to rescue the maiden, who is the prostitute who claims she's 12. And this is what's funny, Michael. You you referred to her simply as a 12-year-old prostitute. I assume that Sport, played by Harvey Keitel, the pimp, I, I figured he was telling people she was 12 so that he could get the real degenerates to spend more money. Ah, uh, Jodie Foster was 12 at the time they filmed Was she? Okay, well, that okay. Then, once again, it seems that I'm reading it wrong. But... <laughs> Um, I like that reading, though. But at any rate, uh, I think that Wizard's conversation does set Travis up uh, in this really, I mean, I I won't call it nihilistic because it's very moral outrage filled, uh, but in this very destructive way, I'll call it that, to create a self. Um, David, what, what else, if anything, do you have to say about old Wizard? His... Uh, his resignation is uh, is is sad, and the way that he's presented as a fig is in some sense a figure of wisdom. Um, it's a very sad sort of wisdom. Um, but but uh, uh, other than that, I I had these expectations of that scene because I because you know I I read your I read your questions, Michael, and I was waiting for it. I was like, what is Wizard going to say? And then Wizard says that, and I'm like, what? that is like everything this man doesn't need it's like he's like i feel like i'm trapped and alienated in this world i don't understand and wizard is like yes we're all trapped and alienated in a world we don't understand go get drunk and have sex (laughs) chad is like yeah no (laughs) um but just the, the 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 inadequacy of uh, the, inadequ- the inadequacy of Wizard's wisdom, the inadequacy of Palantine's wisdom, or Palantine, um, 
there aren't very many wise people in this movie who claim to know what to do with the situation they're in. Um, but the only wisdom that's ever presented is, is grossly inadequate um, to the problems that are apparent. Yeah, I, I think an interesting question to ask when you watch this movie is what would Travis have needed to become a good man? And, yeah. and that would have to be part of it. He would he would need an actual wizard. He would need an actual wise man to give him some advice that wasn't just life is meaningless. Indulge your pleasures. Yeah. I'm still not entirely convinced from what we see that he actually has any of those. Yeah. Pleasures, I mean. That's true. I mean, because when he when he actually talks about the going to movies in the narr- in the narration and and this is this is you know memories that are probably incomplete i've only seen it once the only thing that i ever remember him talking about in in relationship to the movies is this is a thing that i do because i can't sleep hmm and i never see any sense of enjoyment on his face at any time other than when he's on that first date with Betsy. Yeah, when the movie briefly becomes a romantic comedy. Yeah. And somehow he's making the right kinds of moves, and I realize that young Robert De Niro was actually kind of handsome. Oh, yeah. You know, I mean, up up to that point, um, you know, he's such a... He's he's so haunted that you don't necessarily see him that way, and the, like for this m- little moment, you know this you know withered flower gets a little bit of sun sunlight, <laughs> right? And and lays down the template for every Milo Ventimiglia role ever. <laughs> all right, I'm David doesn't know who that, that is. Reference. That's all right. That's all right. He's a he's an actor about our age, David. That's what IMDb is for, man. I'll figure it out later. <laughs> well, this movie ends famously with two acts of violence, one that gets thwarted and one that gets completed. David, what do you make of Travis's attempted assassination of Palantine and then his successful killing of Iris's pimps? And then what on earth is going on in the denouement of this movie? Uh, first, I saw it yesterday. What do you want from me? Uh, second... Yesterday, uh, I was I revisited for class um, for the first time in a while Flannery O'Connor's essay, short essay on the grotesque in literature. Some aspects of the grotesque in Southern fiction. Yes, that. And so, probably because I was sort of carrying Flannery O'Connor in the back of my mind. Uh, as I was as I was watching this movie, uh, I kept thinking of what I was seeing in terms of the grotesque, um, the this sort of warped and misshapen world that Travis Bickle is in, and he also is warped and misshapen. But he's able to see the ways in which it's wrong when everyone around him is, in some sense, assimilated to it. And part of what makes him ill-shaped is the fact that he is also ill-shaped to an ill-shaped scene. Um, He's a wrong-shaped person, but the puzzle that he's in demands a different sort of shape. So he's he's shaped wrong, not just 
in himself, but also for the world that he's in, where where you know almost everyone else's warpedness in some in some sense just nestles in. All right, he's the one that doesn't quite fit. And maybe because I had Flannery O'Connor in the back of my mind, uh, by the time I got to the end, when he you know gives himself a mohawk, loads himself with guns, and starts cruising for Palantine, and then failing that, uh, goes after uh, everyone that he associates with uh, Iris's uh, uh, captivity in his mind is that of, you know, what is the violence that is necessary um, for, for redemption. Not that this is a wise move or an ethical move, but it's a kind of a gut move that looks at this situation and says there is something wrong, there is something wrong and dirty and perverse with this world, something, and, and he sees forces associated with it. Um, his going for Palantine probably, I mean, you know, motivated um, motivated by the, the fact that he sees um, Betsy's rejection of him as in some ways um, a choice, like, like you know, Palantine over him in some way. Um, I don't think the movie necessarily plays that out quite exactly, but you know, maybe some of that is lurking there. Um, I, we know that he's interacted with the politician, that the politician has heard the way that he sees New York, and manifestly doesn't agree. Um, I I don't know. I I I kept thinking, and that per- that's that's the one that makes less sense to me. But I was trying to uh, trying to make sense of it, maybe in the way that if Travis was was asked, how might he do it? And that's in some sense, Palantine is part of the problem for why New York is so corrupt. Um, he is a power. He is. He represents the powers that should be addressing this, and yet aren't. Um, and then, Iris's pimps. That's that's much more clearly. Uh, they are associated with this situation in which he sees uh, someone that he cares about in his own weird way, um, entrapped. And his ultraviolence is the way of dealing with it. Um, again, not. You know, this is n- none. None of this is right, but it's a wrong. It's a wrong-shaped man's wrong-shaped attempt to fix a wrong-shaped world. And yeah, what else would we expect? Nathan, what do you think? Well, I'm going to address the denouement because that is what I didn't remember from 23 years ago. Holy cow! Yeah. <laughs> uh, right. Uh, you know, I mean. And I, and I guess, you know, I am, I am too shaped by comic book movies, but I always assume that if you go after violent criminals and gun them down, that you're going to be hunted by the cops. Uh, you know, uh, I'm not saying that's why I haven't done it myself, but I, I suppose it might be one good reason not to do it myself. Uh, but, you know, in this one, uh, he is made into a newspaper hero, uh, and then... Uh, Betsy in the last scene, I think it's the last scene, there might be a scene after it, gets into his cab and she is complimenting him on it and they have a nice little conversation about Palantine's campaign and I, uh, what in the world? Michael, help me understand this, man. 
I think the key to the whole thing is what you said earlier about him being a moralist without any kind of moral code, because I, him killing the pimps was a consolation prize for him. The first thing yeah, he wanted to do absolutely. was go assassinate this politician whom, he, you know, he might be a phony populist and he might not be very effective as a as a leader, but. He hasn't said anything that we find horrible. And in fact, Travis seems to agree with him about a lot of things. Right. So, that's not why Travis is going after him. That's right. So so he's going after him to impress Betsy or because he feels like he has to do something. And then when he stopped from doing that, because he's actually not a very good killer, he, he goes and kills the pimps instead and, and just kind of barely manages to get rid of them. You know, like that, that scene is interesting because it's not triumphant. He he, no. he right, very right. nearly fails. He he shoots uh, Sport in the stomach and then still gets shot by him. I think twice. Uh, and he yeah, bl- that's how I remember it as well. Yeah. So you you have to get that out of the way. What looks like heroism is really an act of nihilism, just like it would have been an act of nihilism for him to kill Palantine. And I think what we get in the denouement is society completely misunderstanding it. Society always thinks that violence is redemptive. And so if you kill bad people, you must be good. And so all of society, including Betsy and uh, Iris's parents, for that matter, have completely misinterpreted who this guy is. And God only knows what's going to happen after the credits roll. You know what I mean? What's the next one yeah. going to be? Oh, sure, sure. Yep. So I, I think, I think yeah. that denouement is terribly sarcastic. And the joke is on us. Because... because we all cheer a little bit, right? When he kills the pimps, we want the pimps to die. We know they're evil. Like sport is gross. There's that horrible scene with him and uh, with him and Iris. It, the world is certainly not a worse place when he's not in it. And yet, if we're willing to cheer that act, we're going to have to cheer the nihilism that drives that act. I think. I think uh, this movie is very anti-violence, despite its reputation of being hyper-violent. And that scene is, I mean, really disturbing. They they only missed the x rating because they desaturated the print so it it looks very surreal and i think much more disturbing than it would have been if the blood had been bright red i don't know how you guys felt about that yeah it could have been i mean i i that, that's an interesting reading michael and i i I'm, I'm inclined to make it akin to the the british ending of clockwork orange where you know everything goes on and everyone's restored to normalcy and we all pretend that the first 23 chapters of that novel didn't happen. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. One of the things that the ending harks back to is, because uh, it was reminding me of it, but but uh, four years before that was the first Death Wish movie. Yeah, and this is kind of in line with a lot of those. Yep. Yeah. And in 1969 was the first uh, first novel of a an incredibly popular um, pulp series, basically, uh, featuring a character named Mac Bolin, the Executioner, uh, who uh, is is basically he's the Punisher from the Marvel comics before who, who, the Punisher who, de- who debuted in Spider-Man in 1974. Yes. So. Yes. That so. The the Punisher is basically a Travis Bickle with a backstory um, that explains why he's you know waging this sort of one man soldier's war against the mafia, 
so the that um, that hard-nosed, ultra-violent um, street vigilante taking on organized crime in uh, you know our our you know grimy inner cities uh, was a popular genre. And, um, and the one you're leaving out is Dirty Harry. Well, yeah, but Dirty Harry is on the side. Dirty Harry's a, a police officer. In theory, he's not acting as yeah, a police yeah. officer. He's essentially a vigilante. Also, right, all the right. um, black exploitation movies from the early '70s operate on that same register. I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Scorsese gives a gives what is not in in some ways the shape of the story is not remarkable or different. Um, what's different is that he pops the hood on the interior of this character in a way that makes the glorification of a denouement, a denouement that would be exactly the same as um, a Death Wish film or a Punisher comic or a Mac Bolan executioner novel. Uh, and But you realize that that's, that's not in any way approximating what's going on inside the head and heart of the person who pulled the trigger. Yeah, it's a deconstruction of that. I mean, it's worth pointing out he uses the same gun Dirty Harry does, the forty-four Magnum, and he finds yes. it ridiculously ineffective. Well, it takes that guy's hand apart. That was gross. It was gross. It's still gross. It's it, like that scene, despite the hours of violence I've watched in my life, you know, that scene is still really disturbing. I mean, there's something about the way that it's not, um, it's not choreographed in the way that we see a lot of violence in film now. Uh, it doesn't have uh, a lot of those camera movements, editing moves, um, body positions and so forth uh, that we associate with um, either kind of police context or military context or certainly not comic book hero context, violence. Um, there's, there's something... Uh, unfiltered or uh, disenchanted about the eye of that camera and this, you know, character who just sort of awkwardly, he doesn't do anything in a cool way for all of the time that he spends posing in front of a mirror. Absolutely none of this looks cool. The closest thing he comes is when he mock shoots himself when the cops show up. That's the closest right, thing right. to a cool move. Yes. And even that, I mean, th again, think about how nihilistic that, that gesture is. Yeah. This episode was prompted by some controversial statements that Nathan alluded to uh, that Scorsese recently made in the press about film as an art form, and also some widespread cultural conversations about the quality of his films versus that of the glut of superhero movies of the last few years. So I got to thinking. There are some movies that we know are art or want to be art, for better or for worse, the moment we see them. And I'm thinking there of something like Michelangelo Antonioni's Love Insurer. Have you guys seen that movie? I have not. It's a beautiful movie, but it's almost plotless. Like, you, see when you, you, you know when you see it, it's art, whether you like it or not, whether you think it's good or not. And then there are some movies that we know are just mindless entertainment, like Under Siege, starring Steven Seagal. But... In between, <laughs> there's this huge range of films. And I, I want to know what we do with movies like Taxi Driver on the one hand and movies like Captain America Civil War, which I take to be the best of the MCU films, but you can substitute one you like better on the other. What are we talking about when we say that a given film is art 
And need we say that Captain America is not if Scorsese is? Well, I'm going to take this in a few different directions, and you guys can grab onto whatever threads uh, seem worth grabbing. Uh, first of all, I think that, you know, what makes different kinds of movies artistic, uh, and I use the adjective instead of the noun uh, intentionally there, uh, can be a number of things. I mean, it can be something that is visually and cinematically experimental. I've not seen La, La Ventura but I have seen Ter- Terrence Malick's World War II movie, The Thin Red Line. And I saw it right after I saw uh, Saving Private Ryan, which is a very character-driven, plot-driven, uh, you know, World War II action movie, for lack of a better term. What makes Malick's interesting is not any of the characters. I couldn't tell you about one of the characters in that film. But precisely because it takes character out of it and it takes plot out of it, and it becomes a sort of poetic meditation on war with machine guns firing. So, I mean, you know, in that respect, I mean, we're not looking at something that is interesting the way that a Shakespeare tragedy is interesting, but it is interesting in the way that a Picasso or, you know, a modernist painting is interesting. It's experimenting with the possibilities of the medium. Other things, I mean, are going to be interesting, again, like I said, because of the characters. I mean, you look at uh, Hamlet, you look at Lear, you look at Shakespeare's great tragedies, Othello, Titus Andronicus, whichever one you want to pick up on. To the extent that you find them interesting, it's going to be because you have compelling characters uh, who bring up you know, questions about the people around you and the people that look at you in the mirror. Uh, and I use the plural there intentionally as well. So there's not one thing uh, that makes a movie artistic, just like there's not one thing that makes a poetic text or an architectural endeavor, or anything else artistic. I mean, I my own approach to these things is, is not to write off entire categories of things. For the most part, there are exceptions, right? Uh, you know, for instance, internet-era porn, I'm going to say, is probably not artistic. Uh, and I can say that largely because foreign film has separated from it in a way that it wasn't separate from it in the 1970s. Now... I will say that, you know, since we're talking about uh, Dirty Harry and Death Wish and The Punisher as sort of, you know, context for this, uh, I find The Punisher interesting artistically, not because of any given issue of The Punisher that I've ever read, but precisely because, like a mythological figure, there's a possibility for different versions of The Punisher. The one that I read as a teenager was a Vietnam vet uh, you know, Francis Castle was kind of like Travis Bickle in that respect, uh, who came back and, you know, out of a sense of revenge, went out into the mean streets of New York City, uh, which were still this pre-Giuliani den of dealers and pimps and all sorts of things. And he went after them. He assassinated them. And, you know, again, it was interesting in the way that Travis Bickle is interesting. The recent Netflix Punisher, because he's coming back to a New York City that is post-Giuliani, his main enemies are not, you know, dealers, pimps, and so on and so forth, uh, but they are government contractors. They are highly trained, highly precise uh, mercenaries, more often than not working at the behest, directly or indirectly, of the U.S. government. So, you know, I guess one response that I would have to Scorsese is that if you consider the Marvel films 
uh, in isolation, perhaps they are a little bit uh, less complex. If you consider them as adaptations of previous comic book mythologies, then they take on a level of interest in the same way that Aeschylus's version of Agamemnon is interesting next to Homer's, or Sophocles' version of Ajax is interesting next to Homer's. I would also say that, you know, my immediate suspicion whenever someone tries to police the boundaries of real art uh, is to ask the cl classic question, uh, qui boni, who benefits from this? Uh, and, you know, when Scorsese wrote his uh, editorial, and I can't remember right off the bat, I think it was for the New York Times. It was, New York Times. Okay. Uh, you know, I mean, it came out pretty quickly that, you know, he is on some level irritated that he can't get his own films on screens as readily as he used to uh, because he considers that the system is somehow rigged in favor of Thor against his films. Uh, and, you know, I try not to psychologize people who disagree with me. Uh, so, I mean, I, I'm, I'm not going to sit on that. What I am going to say is I'm not really inclined the way that that article is inclined to say that individualism is the single sign of true art. Uh, he says at one point in that article that, uh, you know, the only thing that counts in art is risk. The only real kind of risk is if you've got a single creative genius at the center of it. And I think, well, I mean, unless you think of the Gothic cathedrals as art, you know, then that becomes a little bit more troubling. Um, so, I mean, that's, that's several threads, guys. I, I want to kind of toss it your way because, like I said, when I tried to start making notes on this, what I discovered is that, uh, as is often the case, I've got at least seven or eight questions for every answer that I've got. David, I, I, what do you think, man? I was thinking of uh, Dorothy Sayers' essay toward a Christian aesthetic that we had an episode about, in which she, her distinction between uh, a kind of tr what, what, what seems to be a kind of true art for her, and then what is mere um, kind of cons consumerist uh, uh, entertainment is the degree to which uh, a work gives you something more and other than what you desired. So that uh, so a, a, wor a work's capacity to present you with something that you weren't looking for, that you didn't already have, um, uh, that you... Uh, that wasn't uh, sim simply scratching an itch that you discerned, right, uh, is is something that she can that that she uh, treats in that essay as a, a characteristic of art. Now, in that essay, she uh, she it's and it's not a very long essay. Um, she makes some moves, kind of classifying certain certain forms uh, certain forms as. This is obviously the sort of thing that comes under the, the the category of popular entertainment, and these are the sorts of things that fall under the category of of you know proper art. Um, but uh, I, I think in 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 large part, uh, what uh, our art is not just something that you look at; it's also um, arising uh, in the relationship that you have with the art and the disposition that there is in the audience 
to uh, engage with uh, engage with a with a work um, with a kind of charitable openness to receive what it gives. Um, if you are wait, if you are waiting for a work to convince you that it is worthwhile, um, you know some things are going to make that argument really, really well, and you're going to say this is clearly art. Um, but there might be some works that actually have good things in them that don't make it through their filter because, for whatever reason, they don't do it as well as the ones that so obviously are art. But that doesn't mean that those things didn't that those works didn't have anything to give. Just the the way that you approach them was with your arms crossed, and you know this, that 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 skeptical attitude uh, that says you know uh, talk me out of my, talk me out of the opinion I've already got. Um, some art can do that, <laughs> and that's the art that that typically you know gets the masterpiece crown. Some works of art are not so are not so skillful, are not so clear, are not so um, powerful as that. But that doesn't mean they have no skill and no power. Um, you know, I have very small children. I look at lots of pictures every day that no one is going to hang in a gallery, but they will hang on my refrigerator. Um, do I say that they aren't art um, because they don't end up in a gallery? Not necessarily, um, but a lot of it, I think, has to do with the disposition of the viewer. I, I could imagine that there were viewers of Taxi Driver who who got to the end of the film and and were not surprised or shocked by the denouement, who simply saw the denouement as what they saw in the movie. All right, I mean that that I think that would be entirely possible. Um, in the same way, I can imagine someone watching Captain America: Civil War, or even you know some of the worst films of the Marvel Comics universe, and approaching it um, in in the right, receptive, charitable sort of way, um, receiving good from it uh, that perhaps a more skeptical critic wouldn't. So I don't know. I don't think that's an answer, but certainly not the sort of answer that will settle uh, the. Scorsese's uh, own own arguments, but you know, that's what I tell myself to justify what I like to watch. <laughs> One of the reasons I thought Civil War would be a good comparison is that I think it has a similar sort of message, if you want to call that, about the myth of redemptive violence. At the end of that movie, um, Black Panther has a chance to take revenge, and instead he turns uh, what's his name, Baron Zemo over to the to the authorities. And so I, I think it does something similar to what Taxi Driver does in terms of what it's ultimately trying to say. And yet I don't think that movie wants to be art with a capital A the way that Taxi Driver wants to be art. And that doesn't necessarily make it a bad movie. In fact, I think that's a great movie and I, I love that movie. But I do think it makes it a different sort of animal. And I think we lose something at the multiplex when the only thing that gets shown are franchise superhero movies and uh, cartoons, many of them now just sequels, uh, like the, the new Frozen movie. 
I, I, I think we lose something. And I think Scorsese's right to mourn that, to say that studios aren't taking risks anymore. And I'm glad we have Netflix. That's cool. But I also like going to see movies for adults, if you'll pardon the expression, in the movie theater. Um, and when I lived in Minneapolis, there were a number of independent theaters that showed movies like Taxi Driver um, when the megaplexes wouldn't. And in Atlanta, they, they, there are not movie theaters like that, at least not on the north side. So I, I am in a position to receive his argument. I think we're losing something culturally by not allowing movies like Taxi Driver to have a wider audience. And I think superhero movies, regardless of the quality of the superhero movies, are contributing to that because of what they mean for the studios. Does that make sense? Uh, I mean, the way that you say that makes sense. I mean, I'll confess that the more I reviewed Scorsese's editorial, the less I knew what the noun risk means in his argument. Uh, I mean, obviously it's not physical peril to the director of the actors, or I hope so. And I don't think it's a monetary risk. But I mean, when I think about what is Taxi Driver doing that Black Panther isn't, uh, I don't know if I'd call it risk. Really? I, th- I think Taxi Driver risks alienating its audience in a way that Black Panther doesn't. Black Panther's a really good movie, and it, it has something to say, but it's not confrontational the way Taxi Driver is. I, w- I would say, actually, the Marvel Netflix series probably risk more in that sense than um, the, mar- the films do. And see, I, I, I don't know. I, I, like I said, I mean, I... I can I get I can see your argument. It's a valid argument. I, I just don't know that my experience of those artifacts next to each other registers the same way. I mean, when I when I look at you know Scorsese and he's making his you know forty seventh film or whatever for Netflix, the first thought in my mind is not oh well all the people who love Scorsese at this point are going to hate him after this one. So you're saying essentially he himself is a franchise. Oh, heck yeah, he's a franchise. I mean, look at the response to the, you know, the social media tizzy among the, you know, people with graduate degrees in humanities. I mean, you know, this is, uh, I mean, I won't say he's a semi-divine figure, but I mean, he's a figure that people will go to the mat defending. He's a figure who has earned our respect over a series of decades, I think. So, I mean... Like Black Panther. would you say then risk is something that still is a valid predicate for what he does? Hmm. Not the way it would have been in 1976. I'll grant you that. But the oh, other- I, I can I can certainly grant that. But I would also say that in 2008, Iron Man was decidedly a risk. That's true. This was a little-known superhero. But that's all the Marvel that Scorsese says that he has watched. Yeah. I mean, whether or not he's being fair to the specifics of the movie. But, but again, I'm not sure he's talking necessarily about the quality of the movie. I think he's, he's talking about what the movie is. And the, the thing that's being kept out of multiplexes by superhero movies and cartoons and live action versions of cartoons is... Movies by the young Scorseses, whose names we may not even know because they end up on Netflix or whatever. And I mean, is, is that the case or are they just in film studies departments at universities? Because, I mean, from what I can tell, that's where all the young poets are now. Sure. sure. I, I, so, in other words, I mean, can you I mean, it, it strikes me as odd to blame Captain America for doing this when it seems like it is the MFA that's doing it. 
Oh, now come on. When when did the MFA co- come into <laughs> come into being and what was it responding to? Captain America didn't invent this problem. I mean, if you if you want to look at the invention of the problem, you can probably look at Jaws or Star Wars. It's the blockbuster that kills off the the adult movie. Um, and I guess I mean that in both terms of the words. Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> the, the movie for adults. Um, but we, we live in a world where there is essentially no space for that. I was complaining about this on Facebook in terms of adults who only read young adult novels. And it's not that those novels are bad. It's not that they have anything to say. But at a certain point, if your entire diet is media aimed at 15-year-olds, I... I, I have to assume you're missing something. Uh, and, and I'm just not as sure. I'm not, I'm not sure that I'm as concerned about that as you are, Michael, because I, I it just strikes me that, you know, art house film has always been something that's been a seedy side of town kind of thing. Uh, I mean, in 1976, like you said, Jaws was the big thing. So, I mean, you know, Scorsese seems to have had a relatively productive cinematic career in the era of jaws did he not uh it uh taxi driver was the 17th highest grossing film of 1976 it it set it set a record at the theater it opened at it's hard to tell overall because movies didn't really have wide releases all at once back then jaws is the first i think the second movie to have a Mm -hmm. have a nationwide release at once but I mean, Could Taxi it? Driver was not, I, we, it's not an art house movie the way something like La Ventura is. This is a movie that no. that would play at regular theaters. And it was a movie in a genre of which many were being made then, in the years before, and in the years after. That kind of um, hyper-violent... Um, nihilistic meditation on the bleakness of the corrupt urban inner space. Well, and to follow up on that, David, I mean, that's why it makes it odd to me to say that he was taking a grand risk with it. Yeah. That, that, that's, that's kind of my point is that this, this was a genre film. If this, if this film was released now, it would be, it would be this, 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 this weird thing that seems to come out of, you know, well, no, it wouldn't because you know now is after the seventies. But you know, in in the seventies, this was a genre film. This was this was a this was a common, um, a common kind of movie. It does some very interesting things, some much more interesting things than many of them did. Among them, the ways in which uh, the 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 motives and the 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 inner stability and the vision of the protagonist. Um, compromises uh, what in other movies is a much more straightforward um, vengeance plot um, you know this one this one is much more interesting because of the those moves that it makes in that regard but the other things you know the seediness the tawdriness it could be far more exploitative than it is um, lots of films like that that were coming out like this were as as gory with you know, with nudity, sexuality, um, uh, all of that stuff, much more blatantly and exploitatively um, done. Uh, it's Taxi Driver is almost exceptional in its restraint in some ways. <laughs> I, yeah, but 
you know, I, I, you know, and it's time. It's 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 a very good sort of thing that it is, but the sort of thing that it is is was not uncommon. I mean, it's not sui generis, but I, I, the the idea that this is a genre picture, the way Captain America is a genre picture, that that's an absurd thing to say. It it has a genre. Did I say that? Well, I mean, you you called it a genre picture. Did I say that it was a genre picture like Captain America is a genre picture? Well, then it's a genre picture in the sense that literally every movie that has a genre is a genre picture. Yeah, but I think if you had been going to theaters in 1976 and and went to see Taxi Driver because you had a taste for this kind of thing, I don't know that we would nece- that you would necessarily speak of it in the way that we do, given that we haven't had our entertainment immersed in in movies like that. I am interested to see what contemporary reaction was to this movie. And that would be what we need to look and at. And maybe yeah. maybe yeah. I should have looked that more. up, but So I mean, what would you be looking for if you're going to research that then? Whether people compared it at the time to uh to Dirty Harry, whether people presented as being part of that revenge fantasy genre that David's talking about. Hmm, that's interesting. That's interesting. I I got another question, Michael, because again, I, I'll confess that Scorsese's editorial confused me more than it did convince me or galvanize me. I, I just came away not knowing quite what he was saying. But it strikes me that, I mean, the multiplex is taking the kind of role now that FM radio is. Uh, I mean, you know, Taylor Swift or Bruno Mars is going to be number one, you know, from here for the next several years. Not because everyone listens to them, but because people who are interested in other things go to other distribution channels to get them. And it strikes me that that something similar is going on with cinema. I mean, you know, again, I don't live in Atlanta, I live in Athens, but I mean, I know where I could go to see foreign films, to see indie films. Uh, And, you know, honestly, it wouldn't necessarily have to be a movie theater. I mean, there are streaming services that, you know, specialize in just that sort of thing. So, I mean, is he is he calling simply for, you know, the internet age not to have existed? Or is there something, is there is there another moral appeal there? Because, like I said, I mean, as, as someone who enjoys this movie and enjoys Black Panther, uh, the strong distinction that he makes, I'm, I'm still just not able to grasp it. Yeah, and I don't, I don't know. I, I, and part of the problem is Netflix doesn't release numbers rather famously, so I don't know how many people are seeing or are, are going to watch The Irishman. Probably quite a few. Right, and I wasn't even thinking of uh, Netflix. I'm talking about more independent film distributors online. Yeah, and I would I would like to know what he would like multiplexes to look like. Maybe he wants to get rid of them altogether and, and move back to local theaters. I don't know. Yeah, but not everyone lives in Manhattan. <laughs> right but w- what i'm saying is if you want to see if you want to see a, a movie for adults if you want to see something that's not a superhero movie not a cartoon not a live action version of a cartoon you're probably gonna and, and you want to actually go see it a lot there's a lot of people in this country who have no option to do that you know what i mean in minneapolis i had that option in atlanta 
I'm sure those exist. They don't exist within an hour of where I'm living. And, and I, I find that to be a shame. That's all. Yeah. And see, I just see that as a, a, a product of technological change. Yeah. Okay. So why are we blaming Captain America for it? I, I would not blame Captain America. I would say that Captain America is an artifact of this rather than a, rather than the culprit. Okay, I, I think I can get along with that. I think I can get along with now, that. I don't, like I don't I know said, if he would say that or not. I, I think if he watched that movie, it would probably be better than he thought it was. But I, I guess I see this as akin to the meme that I see floating around occasionally of Dave Grohl griping that, you know, kids don't start up garage bands and make it famous on MTV anymore. It's all pre-produced focus group stuff. I'm thinking, well, yeah, technology has changed. Like MTV is where people go to watch Jersey Shore. People haven't watched Jersey Shore in ten years. Well, I don't. I haven't watched MTV in twenty. But <laughs> I mean, I I get what he's saying. I think that's a shame. I I mean that that's something real, something good that we lost because of technological change. And see, I I, I think it's something different we've lost. I don't know that I have the same sense of mourning, but I, I I'm also a bit of a philistine. I'll grant that. Yeah, I mean, what we need to do is just find the thing that you care about that's been displaced by, uh, by technological quote unquote advancement, and and see how you feel about that. Yeah, yeah, and and, and I think that's the thing. I have trouble naming what that would be. Well, we have gone way over time, so uh, maybe we should uh, end this now. <laughs> Thank you for coming on and talking about Taxi Driver and uh, arguing with me about what films and multiplexes and so forth are supposed to be next week is thanksgiving so we're gonna be obviously we record these on thursday and we won't be recording it on thanksgiving so we're gonna have a week off we're gonna rerun an old episode uh david you were talking about this dorothy sayers episode from february you guys just want to rerun that yeah and hopefully i can get the code mm-hmm. right this time more discussion of um more discussion of what art is. If, if for whatever reason it doesn't show up on your podcatcher, you can always go to our website, christianhumanist.org. We'll have a link to it there and you can listen. And listeners understand that our uh, IT guy and our webmaster is me. So <laughs> my very obvious limitations show through in moments like this. We're not one of those big professional podcasts that are eventually going to run us off the platform. And then, then Nathan right. will have something to mourn. <laughs> That's right, I'll say. You know what the problem is? It's these big podcasts that are dominating the iPhones or whatever the heck they'll dominate. <laughs> Grubbs, what are we doing the week after that? That is an exceptional question. I think it's going to have to be a surprising twist. All right, well, fair enough. Uh, thanks for bearing with us to this episode, listeners. I hope We hope you have a happy Thanksgiving. Uh, the Christian Humanist Podcast is a production of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Until next week or the week after, this is Michael Farmer for Nathan Gilmore and David Grubbs saying, let your sins be strong and let your faith be stronger. <laughs>